Hi, my name is Pablo Galindo. And my name is Lucas Langa. And this is the Core.py podcast, a new podcast where we discuss internals of CPython and adventures in making a new version of your favorite programming language. Last time we discussed the, the original parser that Python used to convert your source code text into an ambiguous representation that can then be compiled into executable form. But that's history. Today we will be talking about the current parser, which is much cooler, and enables powerful features like pattern matching and context-specific syntax error messages, which are very right. cool. Right, so let's begin straight with some definitions. Uh, we, we lost all the audience now. <laughs> it's like mathematics. Right, yeah, yes, exactly. Like the biggest drop-off after one minute. <laughs> well, like the, the old parser was uh, you know, so-called LL1, and this new one is called PEG. P-E-G. Don't look it in Google. So obviously, it's not, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing that people will want to know is uh, what is PEG? Like, what does that stand for? Well, so it stands for parsing expression grammar. Wow. And you know, unlike the Dragon Books of old and so on, like this is actually relatively new. It's not on the Dragon Book, not even in the new colors. No, because this is from the 21st century. So this is new computing science, modern technology. Yes, like 2004. Is the year of uh, Zen of Python. It's the year of Python 2.3. So you know, kind of, it's relatively, relatively new, right? So Python is older than this technology, right? Like that was um, written up in a paper by Brian Ford from MIT, and it kind of is a response to the Dragon Book and the standards that we all used uh, before. So it essentially says that, okay, you have context-free grammars and you have regular expressions. Uh, you can use them to parse things and that's great, but those have limitations. So now with uh, PEG, with uh, parsing expression grammars, we want to overcome those limitations. So for example, thanks to prioritized choice, there is never ambiguity in the grammar. And context-free grammars had to be written in some specific way to avoid two rules to be uh, kind of equivalent and making it impossible for the parser to decide which way to go. So here in uh, PEG, you have prioritized choice, so that's not an issue anymore. The grammar selects the first match. So essentially the ordering matters, but that it makes it deterministic. It's not a die roll. Yeah, it's kind of a trick, right? Like uh, if you spend like years trying to find how to remove ambiguity, you can say, well, I will choose the first option and then the second option and the one that works first, then is the one that I will take. That, that is a way to remove ambiguity for sure. Sure, like we're going to talk about this, but informally, Tools were already doing this in the past. So only now the difference is that somebody actually looked at this with a rigorous mind and wrote a paper saying this actually makes sense. This will end up with a grammar that is consistent, cohesive, and you can express a lot with that. Right. The important thing is that this simplifies syntax definitions that you have. So you don't have to separate lexical and hierarchical components. It's just, you know, easier to express what you want with the language that you're describing. And most importantly, you can write a linear parser for any peg. Well, in theory, right? Scientists suspect that not all context-free languages can be recognized by PEG, but so far this hasn't been proven. This is a so-called conjecture. Right. So currently we don't know, but 
looks like it's good enough for Python at least. Yeah, the world of parsers is quite in a in a difficult place to prove anything. Uh, do you know that actually proving pr- proving that two parsers parse the same language is the whole thing problem? Like you cannot you can it cannot be decided. Wow. It's not that it's very difficult, it's that it's impossible to know. So you replaced the old parser in Python 3.9 with a new one. So now we didn't really know if we were parsing the same language. No. Actually we did, right? Because the new one had a Easter egg, so it was already parsing something else that the old <laughs> one could We don't talk about that. It's secret. It's secret. <laughs> so we already knew that they're not equivalent. This is one way to solve this issue. It's like, is this unresolved? Do we not know? You have to break it on purpose. So now the answer is known. Well, technically, I mean, the way we solve this problem, obviously, is throwing all possible programs and checking that the output is the same. But as you can imagine, <laughs> maybe there is some mysterious, <laughs> there is some mysterious program that is, is parsing differently. And actually, that happened. I, I can give you. A, an example at the end of the episode, so everyone needs to stick around. Oh no, <laughs> tricks. Okay, okay, but before before you get to those examples, like we're talking about parsing expression grammars, yes, yes. and you might want to explain to us what a single parsing expression is, since I was going like from this bird's eye view, saying, "Yeah, hey, they're pretty cool," like, but what what is a parsing expression? Right. So a parsing expression is basically a pattern. And then you express this pattern in different ways. Peg uh, normally has some some mechanisms that are very similar to how we expressed it before, but you, you express this pattern in some way. You can think about regular expressions, for instance. And the idea here is that that pattern basically will match a given string. The string here is your program, or a, like a construct that you're passing, like a for loop or something like that. And either it parses it, so it matches it or not. And if it does, it consumes the string. It means that it kind of like advances the parser to something else, right? So, so if you have a for loop and it matches your parsing expression, then it will it will advance and it will say, okay, what is after the for loop? The if it consumes or not may depend on what follows. So you can have like look aheads and whatnot, but we will talk about that later. Uh, but basically, it's just a it's a pattern, and um, people call these normally rules uh, instead of like parsing expressions because it's kind of like shorter. So when we say rules, are are basically these patterns. Yeah. And then there is like well, the the grammar, or what is technically called the parsing expression grammar. You know, back. And here is just a collection of these rules um, that can reference, and it, they will <laughs> if they they are forming anything that is not stupid. Uh, they will reference each other. And here the key is that they form like a graph. It's not like a, it's not a tree. Uh, and this is because like you know rules can re- refer to each other, and then they can refer back. For instance, even they can refer to themselves. Yeah. Um. So so it's not like as we said in the previous episode, it's not like Russian dolls one inside the other until there is like the smaller rule. Uh. These can like you know refer one to the other, and then you can have either a rule can point to either another rule or what we call terminals, which are just simple words like for, def, if. Things like that. Right. right. So the collection of the, the things that are provided by the tokenizer. Indeed. One interesting thing to say here is that um, I mean it's a bit theoretical. It's not that you can do anything with this information, <laughs> but, but but to get like a sense of, of the difference as well, because there is a technical difference than you know like okay, Peg has the or operator that is order and whatnot. But the key here is that um, one of the big problems with parsing expression grammars and the reason a lot of people fear context-free grammars is because context-free grammars. Um, are made in a way that will make easy to generate valid programs. So if you have a language that is expressing a context-free grammar, for instance, if, if like a standard backus now form or things like that, yep. it's very easy to generate valid programs randomly. So you start in a rule and then there is an or, so you randomly select one of the two and th- things like that. But generate a parser that like 
parsers correct programs is kind of like going backwards. So that's why you know making parsers traditionally has been difficult, and then there's all these rules and all these things. Uh, but Peg is kind of like the other way around. Like Peg is uh, like what the grammar describes is literally how to generate the parser. Mm-hmm. So generating the parser for the Peg grammar is straightforward. Generating random programs from the Peg grammar now is a bit harder. So it literally goes like the other way. Uh, so that's why making parsers with Peg is much easier. I guess that's like a good compromise to have, though, because the thing that we actually want the parser to do is not to generate random programs, but to parse. Right. <laughs> and historically, when we had LL1, it wasn't even really LL1 anymore. So when you are saying that, oh, having this LL1 grammar allowed us to generate valid programs, like, ah, haha, no. No, it's false. The grammar that we had in Python was a lie, right? There were a bunch of things that if you only relied on the grammar file, you would still generate invalid programs. Like the simplest example of this, if you had an assignment, uh, the left and right um, portions of the assignment were using the same rule and the rule was allowing you for way more things that are actually correct on the left side on the assignment in Python. (laughs) Only the compiler later would find out if what you are trying to do on the left side of an assignment is a function call or something other that could be on the right side but you found it on the left side and only then the compiler would reject something as a syntax error. So relying purely on the grammar file Ah, that was still. Wait, Wookes, are, we t- are, are you telling everyone that the grammar file all these years have been a lie? Ah, worse yet, yes. Like when we introduced async and await, the grammar was not even the full parser that we had. Like, you know, that parts of the parser will, in fact, put in the tokenizer. <laughs> the tokenizer <laughs> had to understand whether it is inside a function, which Traditionally is insane. Like tokenizer is just supposed to tell you like is what we are now you know being given is inside a string or not, or is it a keyword, like a strong keyword or not, or is it just some name, or is it you know some uh, comma or dot or colon or whatever. Number, yeah. yeah, but in this particular case, it had to understand whether async as a string is on any given name, some random name, or is it our async keyword? And it did that actually looking at the context of execution. Uh, and the parameter for this in the tokenizer NC was literally called async hacks. <laughs> so this is why uh, like the core developers wanted so badly to remove the soft keyword, even though in Python 3.7 that made adoption of the new version somewhat tricky to end users. I myself remember it was painful like in at Instagram where a bunch of uh, variables were named async, they were Boolean, or there were modules that were called async.py and suddenly you had to actually all do all this movement to get rid of this. But we didn't want this to be part of CPython because that kept part of the parser Inside the tokenizer, which is which is an insane thing to do. It's uh, it's um, super non-kosher. It's it's not what the Dragon Book would ever tell you to do. Well, it's even it's even worse as well because, like, uh, you know, we were checking the code before, and it's starting the the conditional async hacks block. Uh, like, is the difference between the current uh, st- uh, you know location and the start of the token uh, five characters, and is the first one an A? <laughs> 
like from a sink. And then is the next token death? <laughs> yes. Like so, let's say that this is a sink. And now that I'm thinking about this, is now incomplete because you should check also for like width, right? Because now you have a sink width and a sink for and a sink this other thing. So like. Now it sucks because like you will need to check all these different constructs, and I don't think this hack will will cut it uh, in modern times. But hey, it, it it made like some 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 good runs in three six or it was three six, right? It, uh, yes, that was that was three five and three six that had this. So two versions of Python, and then it was deprecated as soon as it was released, <laughs> so we could remove it in three seven. Wow. I, yeah. I, that that is the the you know the testament of open source because if you do this as a company you will be fired immediately you know like I've been working uh, three months to install deprecate my feature <laughs> and it's called async hacks how <laughs> this will pass your code review uh, you know vote on your phones yeah co- corporations have different rules uh, than open source right but like that was LL one and we already I think established it wasn't delivering on what we needed even though as you said before LL one was sort of primitive in certain ways but Guido chose the grammar of Python in other um, wise ways such that the limitations of LL one weren't so apparent even though he did that carefully this was not enough so we had to switch you remember that like how it came about yes actually there is many threads uh, it's, it's a beautiful story because there is like many threads that you know like join in a single point and, and you know materialize in the back parser um so I, I remember like in the first core developer sprint that was uh, in Seattle in the Microsoft offices uh we were even even there I think it was 2000, 2017 or yes. something like that. Yeah, and even then uh, we were talking there about the possibility of having match, you know, because like Rust is doing match and like the cool kids are doing this and it will be awesome. And I remember you know talking with you and and Yuri about like oh we should have match. But then the question appeared, Lucas. What was the main problem of match? Well, soft keywords, right? Like soft keywords, yeah. exactly. And and you know, like we couldn't do it because like everybody is naming their fucking like regular expression match, right? Like match equal are compiled, you know, dot whatever. Uh, so we couldn't like name it much because like it will break everyone. And we were even joking. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I think it was Yuri or you who proposed that maybe we should use the facepalm emoji as the keyword, <laughs> and then we will have the facepalm <laughs> operator. <laughs> yeah, because the, the, there is a pep that is like this joking pep. But now we have Unicode identifiers, so we can express frozen sets as uh, the snowman emoji. Right, right uh, the future. Um, so, so that was one thing, and, and you know, like Widow was very interested in, like, uh, was toying with the idea of having this match thing, and he started to think about that, and he obviously knew that this was a limitation. Uh, also, the story that we discussed the other day um, regarding the all parser uh, when Gukesh seduced me with his uh, corporate powers to, uh, you know, break black <laughs> in the future, uh, that backfired a bit. But I think you also were talking with Widow about about this, right? Like, so you 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 try several developers yes. to try to change it. Yeah, and like, funnily enough, um, we've been doing the LL1 hacks so long that everybody was sort of. You know, sure that something will work. That there is going to be some way that we can hack it enough so that it actually works in practice. You know, and as you said uh, in our last episode, it almost worked. Like there was just this one pesky case that ah. was just you know impossible to jump through with yield. Yeah, I remember that. I, I actually we we had that issue and we we went back and forward and I I finished the issue just proving that it was impossible. So we we closed it um, just to revive it later. Yeah. But I think we just started to play with new parts after that PyCon in which you talked to him 
and uh, he uh, someone someone suggested to him peg parsers while he was like researching different things, and he built like a very simple calculator because that's the first thing you do when you try a new parser, you know, yeah. just to see how the calculator feels. And it's an interesting exercise. It's just because the calculator you can write it in in different ways, and some of them are quite challenging for parsers. So you can have with a very simple language, you know, the language of a calculator, you can have very complicated constructs and things like that. So you can have a very good feel over how difficult it is to construct a parser if you just write that language. And he really liked how, how it felt. Like he really liked how you know regular the parser was and how easy it was to debug. That was a very important thing. And he also felt that, you know, because Guido was uh, a big fan of, of having the parser automatically generated from the grammar, uh, have the grammar file as, you know, this is the grammar of Python, it's, it's the legal text. Um, so he 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 was very confident that we could uh, you know generate this automatically even in C. Um, so at the same as we did with the old parser, just in a different way. So so that's why you know we, he started to work on that. And because you know at the time I was just working also on parsers, I, I joined the effort as well as uh, Lisandro's Nicolau and uh, Emily also helped a bit here. Uh, and that's how we started to work. We did most of the work in the first core developer sprint at Bloomberg, yeah. I think, well, the first and only. <laughs> um, and then we, after it took us a year from start to end to to do everything, including the. Pack. Okay, cool. So my initial question then was when we discovered that LL1 was not sufficient, then why not use what the Dragon Book tells you and what everybody else tells you, which is to use. L A L R, so essentially the what the default Lex and Yak tooling provides, like you know, and Bison right now, and what those are ancient tools for a more civilized time. <laughs> yeah, but it turned out that um, like even in more civilized, civilized, even in more civilized times, Guido's initial gut reaction when he started working on. Python was that there is something wrong with Bison and Yak, and he just didn't like it from the get go. Um, there are those things about um, parsing in Bison and Yak, how you either shift or you reduce. And as we said, with context-free grammars, you can get to situations where two things are equally likely and you cannot decide which one you should go um, and choose. So those are called by Bison and Yak conflicts. And there's shit-reduce conflicts and there's reduce-reduce conflicts. And Guido didn't like the fact that you had to solve those by either wrapping rules in other rules and now magically something that was a conflict is no longer a conflict. But even worse, Bison has Lily directives. And we were already talking about this a little, where you can say that, actually, prefer whatever comes first in the file. Right. So, <laughs> so the thing that is now formalized in PEG, you could already tell Bison's like, you know, it's fine. Just, just you know, prefer the first thing that it comes. But the documentation of Bison tells you, this is evil. You shouldn't depend on this. But then if you find any non-trivial grammar, like in Bison, you will always find this exception somewhere, where it essentially says like that, <laughs> You should expect this, um, but better yet, there is this other way to uh, silence the warnings about conflicts by just saying 
if there's exactly n conflicts, then it's fine. <laughs> so you specify the number and Six say... Six errors are not an error. <laughs> yes, exactly. So essentially, um, like Guido didn't like this. Like He felt like this is ugly and unwieldy and it's hard to come up with uh, you know, solutions for those conflicts and that limits the uh, expressibility of the language that you want to uh, implement. But even the metagrammar, so the actual language that you are using to describe the grammar of your language, that was somewhat annoying in the Bison and Yak tooling. It didn't have some of those organizing uh, like parentheses that allowed you to group things and say there's going to be more than one of those and so on and so on. So expressing those was annoying because you had to again, make other rules just so that you could say there can be more than two of those and so on and so on. And that made the entire grammar file of a language much bigger than it needed to be just because that metagrammar, so that language of uh, meta what you used inside the grammar was the metagrammar. Like the... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that was not powerful enough. Not powerful enough. I have a suspicion as well. This is not official. It's just like my 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 guess. But like um, I think you know, and I don't know this by by you know by myself because like as, as everybody knows, my my background is physics, not computer science. But I'm I'm told that um, you know Bison and Jack are, have traumatized entire generation of computer science students in, when they do compilers or formal languages or whatever the course is. Because basically the course is implementing one of the stupid languages using these two tools. And I guess Guido is also included here. That's one of the reasons probably he doesn't like this because that those those battle stories have to be like crazy. So so yes. That makes sense to me. But you know, like there is there is some some cool things that that you know these tools make stupidly difficult as well. Um like you know, there is ways around and, and most of the you know, big languages. By the way, like I think Ruby, for instance, used to uh, be written in some Lex Jack, and I make a like a look at the file, and it's just monstr- it's just a monstrosity. So like these files are like C files, and you know, like definition files from from Jack that are like super big. We're talking about like thousands of lines, and like, it's really really difficult to to read. I'm saying this when the Python grammar is also I think one thousand lines or something. Well, but now it is. But like to to be clear, like a lot of it is comments that move explanations from the pep inside the grammar file, so that yeah. uh, you don't have to look at the pep while reading. So and we have all the know. error error location blah blah blah. Yeah. So so like that that's some somewhat of a different case. I think like you know the the, the core grammar of just the language is, is way smaller. But you know, like if you're honest, right? Like if you're honest, then you have to say when PEG was chosen, I was immediately also deemed like insufficient in how it is described in the paper that defines it, right? Like yeah, there, yeah, there yeah. had to be some innovations that Python did to make PEG work for what we needed. So like what were the innovations? What did you have to change? Well, one of the things is that PEG is, is just very bad in performance-wise. Uh, in the paper, what it describes is basically an exponential parser. Parsing any 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 you know string uh, will take an exponentially big time uh, given the length of the input. So you know like one takes uh, logarithmically lower than like ten, right? So so it's like it's bad. 
So one of the things that we needed to do that, you know, fortunately because this was 2004, um, like there is a lot of research since then. And one of the things that people have done is like to ensure that you know parsing can be done actually. So so there is this uh, techniques that we will talk in a second um, that basically tame a bit the the the, the complexity uh, of running the parser from exponential to linear. So that's one thing that was easy because like mostly everyone does this this thing called packrat parsing that we will talk in a second. Um, the other thing is not necessarily needed, but like this is something that you know now that we're working in the parser, we really wanted is to have something called left recursion. And left recursion is this idea that um, a rule can start with itself. Uh, for instance, the calculator again is <laughs> a language that you can write like left recursion. Yeah. Um, and this is, for instance, also used to encode. Um, the order of operations in the grammar. So again, if the calculator, you know that multiplication takes more precedence than addition. So you have, you know, three plus two times a. So the multiplication at the end take, is, is done first, and then you add the first number, right? Of course. So so that can be encoded correctly if you if you uh, write your your uh, grammar rules nicely. And one of the best ways to write them is to use left recursion. So, for instance, if you just focus on the part when you're describing addition, um, just addition, you will say that you know an expression is an expression plus a term when you know expression is again an expression plus a term, an expression is again an expression plus a term or a single term. Yeah. So basically, what you're saying is that um, you know uh, addition can be something plus something, where the left part is can be more complicated or something simple. So term you can imagine in term like number. So you can say like you know. Um, like addition can be uh, so expression can be expression plus number or number so you know a number with like three so that will be just that but it can also contain like another one so you have plenty of um, you know plus signs together so one plus two plus three plus four you can you can call the rule again and again and again and it will keep parsing from the left oh. um, and that can only be done if your language allows you to express this recursion nicely because like most Parsers will, uh, you know, parse infinitely. Will not even attempt to parse any number because they will say, "Oh, an expression is an expression plus a, yeah. uh, something." Oh, what is an expression? Oh, and they will keep, uh, you know, going down the rule yeah. uh, until they crash. Uh, so, so this is something that we really wanted to have, and Perk doesn't really allow this because what Perk basically the the way you will write Perk parsers is to have uh, recursive parsers. And recursive parsers technically normally are not left recursive because of this, because they will keep asking like, what is an expression, what is an expression? Um, so we needed to have some tricks. That fortunately, you know, there was some research, although not super popular. So this is like on literally bleeding edge. We did so we came with like some di- like like slightly different architecture for this. Apparently, we were told that you know, as, as everybody does in academia, there, there was some person who already had some some previous version. <laughs> uh, ours is, is a bit different, uh, we have to say, but the, the idea was already you know, uh, but but the, the paper was very uh, recent. It was like two thousand. 13 or 14 wow. or something like that. Okay. Um, it was growing the seed, and that's the, the original version of this algorithm, but we're looking with this diff- slightly different idea that was more tied to how we were constructing the parser. So that, that allowed us to both implement memoization and left recursion in the same way. Right, so that's, that's very cool. So now we actually do have the new parser. What are the less obvious things that this new parser allowed that we couldn't have before? Well, one of the things, for instance, that we were a bit worried is that this memoization was making the parser eat more memory, but we were plenty surprised when actually it, take, it took a bit less memory. And one of the reasons, which is an advantage, because this also makes it much faster than the other one, is that um, this doesn't generate an intermediate tree. 
So the previous parser, as we discussed in the previous episode, uh, before generating the abstract syntax tree, which is the the, the kind of representation that the compiler needs, uh, it generates this previous representation called the concrete syntax tree that will include things like commas and like you know other things that are not really necessary. And then there is like this process that will take the concrete syntax tree and it will transform it into the AST. That process was written by hand. And what we say about code written by hand, especially in C99. It's buggy. Not only buggy, it's now illegal. Illegal, yes, yes, yes. The U.S. government, the U.S. government, uh, so as this, this beautiful document that says that now uh, C and C++ are illegal, are illegal. You cannot write C and C++ legally now. Uh, we are screwed. Um, but then the, the U.S. government will be uh, happy to know that that um, well, yes, it's C, but it's automatically generated. So it's like machine writing, not learning, but written. It's another verb. It has to work. Um, so uh, the advantage is that you know because we generate less things, then it's faster because doing less things is faster than doing more things. Of course. Wow. Uh, so that's <laughs> that is uh, very good. Uh, the other thing about having uh, manually written code that transforms one tree into another tree, apart from you know this could be an interview question, but it was not. It was C Python. Uh, is that uh, it, took, it had a lot of little problems because you know it's written by hand. And uh, C code written by hand that transforms trees is, is very hard and it's impossible to have right. So um, one of the things that you needed to do when you were transforming the trees is to keep the location of the token. So you know this token goes from this uh, line to this offset to this line and this other offset. And that was done by hand, and you know it was full of mistakes. But nobody cared because those locations were not used for anything. But then you know we had this. Cool pep that has this horrendous name that I will regret for, for, for uh, until the end of time, which is pep six five seven. Include fine grain error location in tracebacks, and this is what allowed this nice you know error location tracebacks that we have in three eleven, three twelve, and, and more. And this uses these locations, and, and because you know the, the the previous locations were done by hand, all of the locations were wrong, and we will have had like gazillion uh, you know back reports of how like this is not useful because it's wrong, but. Because now it is all automatically generated, all the locations are magically correct because the machine doesn't make mistakes. <laughs> that, that's what the machines want you to think. <laughs> yeah, but what else? Some other things is that you know we can have this funky syntax like parenthesis context manager and break different formatters. That is kind of cool. Uh, yeah, very uh, cool. But the other thing, which is less known, uh, is that let precaution, apart from you know allowing you to write these rules a bit better, allows you to avoid another kind of hack that we have with LL1 grammars. Yeah. And the problem is that the LL1 grammar is also not possible to have left recursion. Oh no. So how we solve the problems? Well, there is like a bunch of techniques that you can do when you cannot have left recursion because you know if you can write calculators then then your your uh, parser is, is just a bit stupid. So for instance for the calculator example when you will write an expression is an expression plus a term or a term. So instead of writing that because that is left recursive, we will say that an expression is a term and Optionally, a sequence of zero or more plus terms. So basically, you're saying the same thing. You, you, this rule basically parses two plus three plus four plus seven. So you're saying that it's either one or multiple ones, right? When you have like plus something at the end. Right. The problem is that the first one, the, this one that I'm mentioning right now, that has this this one or zero, uh, sorry, zero or more repetitions of uh, plus and term, generates a linear tree because is you know term and then you add more stuff at the end. 
So th- that's yes. not what you so want. The order of operations is not preserved. Exactly. So you have like a big array when you have the tokens one plus three plus four, but that's you, you are not reflecting the order. The order is from the right, right? And then you have multiplications. Yes. You want that. So you want a, like a tree that is plus, and then it has two childs. One is three, and the other is another plus, and then that has two childs. One is four, and that's another tree, and that reflects the order. The compiler will receive this tree and it will immediately create vehicle without having to understand that multiplication takes precedence and blah 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 blah. So so before the you know the the, the transformations from the CST to the AST needed to do this extra transformation to transform this linear array into the tree version. And now we generate the tree immediately. So that is also that makes not only the code much easier, but it's also faster because you need to do less work. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, what is less cool though is that now with the pick parser, uh, Python could now grow new features. And the original motivating example with the with statement having multiple elements that had organizing parentheses uh, was one of those things that we've proved was impossible to be parsed with LL1. And then we added match statements with cases and this DSL that you have in a case. And that's, again, something that would be impossible with LL1. But guess what software was written Using an oh, no. LL1 parser. No, it's impossible. Are you telling me that Black was using an LL1 parser? Oh, yes, it was. Uh, so <laughs> now, <laughs> because of my complaining, like, you know, one of the things obviously that motivated the pick parser, maybe the smallest one, but one of those was my complaining. Black kind of shot itself in the face. Not, not even in the foot, no. Like it was essentially, haha, now you have to rewrite the tool. But wait, was it rewritten? No. No. But can it actually parse parentheses with, with statements? It has async hacks, I'm told. Oh, yes. And can it actually hack uh, match statements too? Yes, it can. <laughs> but if you look inside. At what price, Lucas? At what price? Well, at, at the price of uh, Batuhan Taskaya's sanity, like he, because he was the person that implemented those hacks inside Black's parser. So if you squint enough, you're going to see the same uh, tokenizer insanity that we had with uh, Python 3.5 and 3.6 for async and await in C Python. Um, now, with when you recognize that there is a match word in a source file with black, you're going to have a modified grammar and a modified tokenizer that has a so-called token proxy. And that token proxy emits things until it finds, uh-oh, there's a match. So now it will stop emitting tokens, but it will see what happens next, and it will consume uh, the incoming file. What happens next until it finds something that would be invalid? Jesus in Christ, man! Statement. This sounds like a deal with the devil. Like this is the <laughs> this is the you are you are just describing the computer science version of corruption. Like this is just, uh, it's just yeah, it's it's not something that we wanted ever to have, but it was sort of you know either that or rewrite the tool from scratch, which would be way worse for the users since there would be no way to write it in a manner so compatible that people can just switch from that to the new version without any disturbance. 
Oh wait, isn't that what Charlie Marsh did? Nah, nah doesn't matter. Nah, doesn't we didn't matter. Talk about that. At the time, we didn't know. <laughs> like we weren't so confident that this is actually something that can be done. Uh, so the hack was used instead, and you know, um, it is actually interesting in more than just the tokenizer hack, since what Batuhan um, kind of understood and realized was that we are still using the AST of Python to check whether what you're producing before formatting and after formatting is valid. We still do this, right? So right. we can assume that there's going to be some part of Black's um, pipeline that will check whether your code is valid. So inside our match parser, we don't have to actually parse the language as described in the grammar of Python. Because that DSL is more limited, it doesn't accept any expression inside the case. But we don't care, right? Because Jesus. the AST will find later no. if somebody would actually use something no. that is not really no. a match statement. But in black, extreme coupling, string coupling. Yeah. So yeah, in black, you can actually have like crazy things inside the uh, case expressions, and it will be fine until you get to the AST when actually Python will tell you uh, uh, this is invalid. Man, man, the, I, I have so many things to say to this. Uh, I have too many. I knew the <laughs> basics of this hack, um, you know. But uh, Batuhan, I, I remember I promoted Batuhan, so I, uh, you know, I, I admire his resilience. To, to solve these, these problems, but I didn't knew the whole story, and I have so many things to say now. Or we don't have time, but I, I want to say that now, like you know, normally you you will say, oh, you know, parsing is so complicated that you need to split it. Now you have this nice, you know, definition that is like, oh, you have the tokenization and the tokenization only does this thing, and then the parser only does this thing. But now the names don't mean anything to you, don't they? <laughs> like it's just like a blob. It's like, I will parse for you, like you know. It's like you will do this thing. And and the other thing I have to say is that I have this beautiful discussion the other day, uh, because when we adopted Black uh, and my team in in Bloomberg, uh, you know everybody was uh, scared of Gukes Langa, the bringer of doom, <laughs> and like oh what if like you know we format all these files and it changes like you know the semantics of the code. So I implemented this GitHub bot. They will parse the EST and it will say the EST didn't change. So you don't need to review this code. You can just merge it. And it was beautiful. And then you know that was done and the, the, the GitHub bot was there still, but it was abandoned. And the other day we were just saying like, oh, we should remove this bot, right? Like it doesn't do anything. And I was like, well, it's kind of cool. You can still do it. And like, you know, you pass a formatter that is not black, like maybe, you know, rough or whatever, like then you can check. Uh, but then I was told that apparently black doesn't check anymore if the AST is preserved, right? Oh no, that's not true. So like that was that was the only thing that actually made people adopt black, and I actually wanted it for myself too. That we checked whether the AST is exactly the same before and after. You still check it these days? Life always interferes. Mm. Life is just pragmatic, and like even even the Zen of Python like says things about <laughs> pragmatism. And in our case, the pragmatism was very simple. Google-based code that used two space indents that was later reformatted with black was reformatted nicely except for one place. All the doc strings were now uh, indented wrongly because they were multi-line strings oh. and inside the string we don't touch anything because that is part of the AST. We would actually find that the AST is different now. This is semantic difference. This is content. No, we're, we're not touching this. Right, right, right. But we got 
hammered by uh, requests of people like, "Hey, you need to fix this. Like, the, the, this is wrong because you know I also don't want to nicely indent my doc strings. I want black to just align them with my uh, function signature." And there was so much prominent feedback about like, "No, this needs to be part of the formatter," even though other formatters didn't go as far as to actually look inside doc strings and change them. But people were like, "No, black needs to do this if it if it actually wants to like enforce every." Everything doc strings need to be re-indented too, not reflowed, right? We're not gonna put next extra new lines or remove new lines, like no, but okay, just reflow them so that they align to the function, uh, you know, below which they are. Yes, yes. So we did that, but now there was this issue. Well, obviously, this entire AST check will not work anymore. So there is one exception in the AST check that just is about doc strings. We will now like have the check, but the doc strings are going to be compared as if they were not reflowed mm. because we know that okay, this is this one check. But doesn't this force you to re-implement the whole AST check? No, there is a visitor post uh, creating the AST that mm, just says right, like right. oh, like for doc strings, which by the way like uh, have specific place in the EST, so they're trivial to find, they're semantic. Well, but, uh, well, this is a lot of words, Gukes, but this means that my bot is broken, because my bot will fail, it will check the EST before and after, and it doesn't have this stupid exception. Well, about that that only happens like once, and then you can probably just ignore that failure for so. reflowing code that is uh, coming from some you know pre-existing nah, 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 nah. formatting. The important thing is that I broke you and then you took revenge. This is, this is what happened. <laughs> I don't think that was revenge, like, <laughs> but still, like, yes, uh, rightfully, probably there are people that say, like, yeah, this is no longer true that black is not changing anything because it's gonna me- reflow my doc strings. Well, I, I cannot wait until they learn that in three thirteen we automatically did then doc strings. <laughs> Secret. Okay, okay, okay. It's not breaking anyone. Don't don't tell anybody. No, no, no. Python, Python uh, may or may not change the doc strings in three thirteen. Uh-huh. All right, so like, okay, but this is not black.py, right? Uh, in fact, there is no black.py anymore. Like, for the longest time, I was like, this is fine as one file. Oh, come on, you also destroy the file. Let's, no, you, this is depressing. Let's split. So, yes, that's depressing. Let's talk about the peck parser You're again. You're compromising core formatter, my ass. Oh, it's no, it compromises everything. Boom. Okay, we have the peck parser now. So, the one that we had before was very easy to understand. The no, the one that we have now is a little more tricky. Now let's speed run the the actual part that people want. So so you know like that's 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 let's surprise everyone by not doing what they want. So okay, let's explain how peg parsers work. Yes. Okay, so it's very simple. So you have rules which are these like expre- like like almost like regular expressions. Like they actually feel like regular expressions. And then the idea is that in those rules you may have the OR operator, which is this pipe, this vertical bar, and that allows you to say, well, this rule can be either be this or that. And the important thing now is that instead of using math and complicated algorithms to know which of the options is the correct one, you will try one, and then you will try the other, and the first one that works is the one that you get, and that, that, that is it. And the idea is that um, when you are generating a parser for the grammar, every of these rules is a function that you will write, and when that rule calls another rule or refers to another rule, that's a call that you make in the parser. So, and the call will basically say, yes, this rule matches. And in that case, it will return a null in the AST or whatever result you have. Like if you're doing a parser that just checks if it's valid or not, it will return true or false. But you can also return like the AST and then you construct the AST as you go. 
So it will return something or it will return nothing. So in a normal parser, returning nothing is an error. It's like, meh, because like the, the math will tell you if it works. And if it doesn't work, then nothing works. Uh-huh. But here, because we say that you need to try one and then the other, returning nothing just means, well, this didn't work, maybe the next one will do. Yeah, try the next one. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And this is what we call like one of the consequences of these simple statements is that this now has infinite backtracking because this like try this try this try this try this uh, you know when you pile one rule after the other and you know this is done recursively now that allows you to have infinite backtracking and and but that and that's the whole idea and the whole idea is that you go and you say like you have three possibilities so then you have an if condition with three possibilities and that's it and then you try one and then the other and it's an or. So the first one that works is the first one that you get. Funny enough, if you are implementing this in Python, this construction uh, allows you to use the wall roots operator, oh, the forbidden one, yeah. uh, in a very nice way because you can have an if that will check uh, the three options and uh, using the wall roots allows you to get the first one that matches if you have ors in the middle. Wow. Incredible. But uh, this also allows to have a bunch of funky stuff that you couldn't have in the previous one that also feels like regular expressions, but not all regular expressions, only the cool ones. Uh, so you can have, for instance, look-aheads. So you can say, this rule will match, I don't know, four, and then something, only if that something starts with, I don't know, the letter P of Pablo. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's how is that possible? Well, because like you can you can literally parse that and then go back if it doesn't if it's not true. Uh, the previous parser couldn't do that, even if it sounds very simple, because it uses math on these algorithms, and, and that is boring. Yeah, it had like one token of look-ahead. Yes, but now we can have... All the tokens because you can have entire <laughs> an entire rule in the look ahead. Wow, how is this possible? So you can literally write like a stupid rule, and the stupid rule will check your thing. And if that rule is true, then it will work. And if not, you will go back and try something else. It's just fantastic. It's super easy to to do. Uh, it only has the kind of like problem that it makes the whole thing very slow. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's kind of problematic. You know, like exponential time. It may or may not be the worst complexity that you can face. You know, it's kind of bad. Um, Technically, it's not exponential, but, but it doesn't matter. Because when people say exponential, they, they don't know what they are saying. Uh, there is potential and then there is exponential, two different things. And impotential. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, this, this actually grows like, like n to the power of n. Uh, so not, not e to the power of n. So it's actually faster. It doesn't matter. So, uh, but this, this uh, allows us to, you know, what comes next? So do you know where we use these hookahs? The what? The look ahead? The look ahead. One place when we use the look ahead in the grammar. Well, like for sure, you need to use this for the with statement that we are talking about. Yes, 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 bingo, bingo, bingo. That it is because, like, we say, oh, it's like uh, you know, is this is this followed by like a parenthesis or not, and then we can decide which one of the two, yeah. um, which is which is funny. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, one funny thing that is just f- fresh news, fresh news here. Like this, this is like literally yesterday. Like we, we learned this the other day. Well, not not yesterday, but last week. Uh, apparently, <gasps> we found the first the first difference between the old parser and the new parser. Oh really? Wow! It was something that was not parsed the same. Wow! What it is, guys? <laughs> I don't know. Tell me. It is related to the context managers, and you will see immediately. So apparently. Before, in the old parser, you couldn't have parentheses context managers, but you can try. And something that you can try to do is to write with parentheses, open or something there, I don't care, comma and close parentheses. Uh, and that is a very stupid thing to write because that is a context manager with a tuple, a tuple in the context manager. And that will never work because tuples that have entered and exit, but it's technically, syntactically valid, chin, 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 chin. <laughs> but now, 
Now it's a parenthesized context manager, a totally different oh, beast. So you will never get the So now it's not a tuple anymore. Now it's a parenthesized list of context managers. Okay. Semantic difference, semantic difference. Always a lie. Well, you know, if someone was trying to put tuples in context manager, now it's crying on a corner, but uh, as that was invalid, uh, we don't care. <laughs> uh, I, re- I, I actually checked my notes from the time and uh, we knew about this and we didn't care. And now uh, we we learn again, but yes, uh, one of the things that happened with this, like you know, try this, try that, that, and like you know, going recursive and infinite backtracking, is that infinite is a very big number, and you know, it's, it's kind of slow. So the way you, <laughs> yes, yes, infinite is very big. Did you know that it's very uh, different ways. They, they are different in infinites. There are infinites that are bigger than others. You know, like oh yes, yeah, Aleph, Alephs, they are called Alephs. So Aleph one is is is, is bigger than uh, Aleph zero. Wow. Yes. Yes, it's incredible. This is this is Aleph Aleph Omega, which is a, a, <laughs> even a different infinite. It's true. There is there is the ordinal infinite and the cardinal infinite. Uh, they are different. Um, that doesn't matter. We will talk about it another day. But like, uh, what what what's this Aleph? Is like this um, Hebrew? Um, it's a like Hebrew letter. letter. It's like like N with a lot of like it's in a cold day because like trembling, like brrr, you know, like it's like trembling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that yeah, that that's that. It that's represents the, the number of natural numbers. Aleph zero, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then Aleph one is the number of real numbers. Okay, like how many real numbers there? Are. Yeah, both are infinite, but one is bigger. It doesn't matter. So, so uh, yes. So how how do we make this this infinite not infinite? Uh, we use a cache because that's what you do. It's not Redis. It's an actual. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a linked list because we are writing C and uh, you know illegal languages to use linked list. Right. Um. So so our cache is like a very fancy linked list with like uh, some tree shape. Um, but doesn't matter. We use this cache, and uh, the cache basically will tell you if an entire parse that you try before uh, wor- will work or not. Because as you can imagine, if you try again and again and again, and then you go back to the previous rule, and then you try again and again and again the same thing, you don't want to parse the same thing twice. Right. Uh, you know it's going to fail. So we cache basically the results, and that tames the parser. You can prove it. Actually, it's a cool uh, uh, mathematical proof. You can tame this into average linear time, which is what you want. Would you want things to be linear with the number of tokens, which is kind of cool. And we also use this cache um, for uh, the left recursiveness. It's an, a complicated algorithm that I'm not going to describe here. But caches, what are the problem with caches, Lucas? <laughs> I don't think you mean cache invalidation. You probably mean memory consumption. Yes, they like memory. No, 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 no. They, they eat a lot of memory, and memory is bad. We didn't like memory. Uh, it doesn't matter really because like people don't care about memory. But you know, GPUs are eating like entire cakes of, of memory. But but we, we kind of care. Like we we like to do cool things. Um, so uh, it turns out that uh, even if uh, most people that will tell you that you need to use this cache. By the way, this algorithm is called packrat parsing. Uh, that's the technique. Yes. Um, so the, 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 we learn very quickly through reading uh, sacred papers that you don't need to memoize everything. You only need to memoize what is called the chunky rules. And that is not a technical term, that's my term. And the chunky rules are, are rules that will eat a lot. So it's, it's basically if you, if, you, um, if you plot the graph of the rules, are rules that have a lot of arrows. So you know, they, they eat the arrows, they are chunky. Okay. Uh, so you, uh, we created a um, um, way to say, okay, this rule is memoized, this rule is not. So that is great because you have less caches and you still have linear time. So you say, at chunker. Yes, at like, chunker. But it's called memo. But, but yeah, we still yeah, have it's, a chunker. It's boring, yes. Chunker. But something can go wrong. It was a rule that should have been memoized and it was not. Um, and, and that has a problem. For instance, if you write the sequence of um, uh, 15 open uh, curly braces and then a colon, which is invalid Python, as you may know, Python will nicely parse recursively the whole grammar <laughs> <laughs> 2 to the power of 15 times. 
Uh, well, uh, that is kind of like not too bad. In modern processor, that is actually like fast. It takes like you know fifteen seconds or something like two, two three seconds. Sorry, uh, but it turns out that if instead of fifteen open uh, curly braces, you add like thirty, it takes one hour. And probably if you add one more, it will take like two hours. And and that goes because it's n to the power of n. Uh, and that was an actual bug. It was BPO four six seven zero seven. You can go out there. Uh, it was reported by Anthony Shaw. I remember. I don't know what he was doing. He found this. Um, but but he reported it, and then we solve it by adding a memoization cache. And did you tell him like it's not exponential actually? Uh, nah, nah, nah. He already knows that I'm annoying. I don't need to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, one thing that you mentioned about the grammar file is that oh, we still have like a one that is pretty big now. But um, you mentioned that some of the rules in there are not used every time, that they are very specific. So what I discovered that is that, yes, in fact, there are two passes of the parser, right? right? Like you have the one where we are parsing some valid Python program, so it's going to parse, it's nice. Um, we know how to turn it into a tree, now we can compile it, now we can execute your code, it's fine. But if we fail for whatever reason, because that first pass of valid Python is not possible, then we turn on additional rules that allow us to do what you introduce to the language, right? Which is the nice syntax error messages that tell you exactly what you did wrong. Uh, whereas LL1 used to be extremely confusing when you were um, forgetting a closing parent or forgetting a colon or whatever. Right. So now there are two passes, and the second one allows for nicer syntax error messages. So there are, in fact, macros like that is that are called literally race syntax error known range. Race syntax error on a next token, race syntax error, race indentation error, and so on, that uh, allow for those specific um, error message cases. So tell me, how do you come up with describing a grammar for mistakes that people make? So how do you go about adding a new thing there? By suffering, that's the way you do it. Um, it's actually a very hard problem. We actually try, by the way, uh, trivia. We try to do this automatically, and then <laughs> we quickly learn that it's very stupid. Uh, because, like, you know, if, if you see, like, I had this idea of like saying, oh, uh, every time the parser will try to parse something and fails, you will remember that, and you know, the 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 farthest. Failure point. Uh, you remember all the tokens that could have made the parser advance, and then you will tell the user, "Well, this is as far as I went, and if you will have given me any of these tokens, it will have been nice." Uh, that sounds like a great idea, right? But then the error message will be like, "Hey, a syntax error. Maybe you mean one of these sixteen different possibilities. <laughs> like maybe it was four, or maybe it was if. Uh, what about this colon? Like, will be? It was so stupid that <laughs> when I tried this rule, and then I, you know, I just said, "Oh, it has this small problem that sometimes it just shows you all the possible tokens in the grammar. Like, for instance, you if you make a syntax error that is like a bunch of backlashes, you know, that's bad. It will tell you, well, I expected everything, and it will just print everything, all the possible <laughs> keywords and." Tokens and shit, <laughs> but one of the tokens that was there was the was the Easter egg, uh, you know, like the underscore underscore peg underscore parser that used to be the yes. Easter egg. It was a keyword, so he also said maybe you mean underscore underscore peg parser, <laughs> and it was like yes, let's do the two things, let's not do that, and let's also remove the Easter egg. <laughs> oh, yeah, so so I I destroyed my own Easter egg. Uh, but yes, that is bad. So uh, it turns out that you need to like do a superset of the grammar. Mm -hmm. That will try to detect uh, what the user is writing wrong, which is surprisingly complicated because, like, you need to parse 
all the ways to write incorrect Python. <laughs> so uh, that is uh, obviously impossible. So it's like a best effort kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a lot of theory here that we can we don't have time to go into. Uh, because like if you do this in YOLO mode, you will suffer. Like it's, it's super hard. It's, it's very easy to just destroy yourself because the rules will basically like uh, annihilate each other and it will compete with each other to parse syntax errors. So you have syntax errors that have more precedence than others, and like it's yeah, like exactly. if you do it badly, it's a, basically a whack-a-mole game. So there's like a lot of structure, and also by the way, there is like a bunch of like hacks there. Um, well, hacks not sorry. Um, Strategies. There's a lot of strategies there. Uh, <laughs> we no longer have hacks, right? It's secret. I mean, it's documented there. So you read it. Uh, there is nice comments that will explain you the whole thing. But like, uh, is this kind of thing that uh, as a programmer it, it will make this like feeling in your spine, like Ugh. so you know, like why? So for instance, you can name your rules whatever you want. You can say this rule is a for loop, and you write for and score loop, and that's it. That's the name of the rule. Mm-hmm. It means nothing. It's just the way you will use to refer to the rule in another one. So you say expression is for loop. So you will use your name. Right. But Gukesh, this is secret. This is like like the first time anyone. This is revealed to uh, everyone. If you made a rule that ends in without invalid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then the parser will will magically know just by looking at the rule name that when it parses the this rule, it will not try to parse invalid rules underneath. Nice. Wow. And this is how I allow like these conflicts to be resolved sometimes. Um, because you don't want invalid rules to invoke other invalid rules sometimes, other times you want to. Yeah, or or valid rules in, uh, invoke the invalid ones, like you know, like yeah, before you try it actually every option, right? Because then Yes, um, valid rules not invoking the invalid ones is done by these two passes. So the first time you pass the invalid ones are never tried. None of them are never tried. Well uh, technically that makes by the way the second hack because like if a rule is called invalid, then it, it will be identified as an invalid rule that will not I be see. tried in the first pass. Right. Which is also made by name. So you know, once you do one, convention. you can do the, the second convention. There is other conventions that are a bit nasty, but but this is one, um, and this works quite nicely. It's just that you know you need to be a bit careful when you do it. So it's not just super 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 easy, but it's like it's certainly much easier than doing it by hand, and it's certainly much easier than than well, or better than doing it automatically because automatic errors in your parser suck. If you have any parser whatsoever that will tell you our super cool technology allows you to have these super nice error messages automatically, they suck. They, they are bad. Like yeah. they, don't okay. don't get fooled. It's just bad. They they are like things like oh there is a colon missing here. Ah, like okay, right. One thing that I'm wondering about is that the old grammar file used to describe the rules and how they related to other rules, and that was essentially it. That was essentially the content. The new grammar instead also has bits and pieces of C code. Some uh, parts of the rules have assignments to variables, and some rules have declared return values. So, what's up with that? What's all the C code doing in well, the grammar? Well, those are the actions. They're called grammar actions. It's something that I think other parts of the need to have, so it's very popular. And the idea here is that when a rule succeeds, then you have to return something if the rule succeeds, or nothing if the rule fails. Uh, but the something can be anything you want. Uh, you know, if you are building a parser that just checks if something is good or bad, then you return true or false. But you can now return entire tree, and in particular, uh, to construct that tree, you need to run some code. And the actions allow you to literally tell me what code do you want me to write when the rule succeeds. Uh-huh. And because rules are calling other rules, that is a recursive process that makes the whole thing perfect to uh, write something that creates a tree. 
because you know trees are created recursively, mm-hmm. and uh, the actions are basically a C code that is copy pasted in the in the uh, generated code that will be run only if the rule succeeds, and that's the way we create the tree. So we have a bunch of functions in C uh, that allow you to create this node or that node or the other node and this thing. And then when you write in the grammar, you tell me what node do you want me to create if the rule succeeds. And because the parser generator is going to generate C code, then you will just copy paste your C code and that can be a function or something like that. You don't need to write obviously five lines of C code. It can be just one function call right. and that allows you to write literally the final parser just by reading the grammar. So in the rules, you can specify what a return type a given rule is going to have. So that function is going to return some C struct. Mm. So this is tied pretty closely to C, but in the pep it says that the thing about the pep parser is that we can generate uh, both C and Python code from the grammar. So if you have bits of C in the grammar, like how can you emit Python code then? Well, I mean, you, you cannot. <laughs> That's the way if you want to generate Python, you need another grammar that has Python in the rules. Uh, funny enough, uh, we have the same parser generator for both uh, Python and C. It's just that the backend is different. So you know, you, you parse the thing, and then when you generate one of the others, you use two different backends. But uh, the the original grammar that describes what is possible to write, so how you write the the grammar itself, what we call before the meta grammar, uh, that is written in Python and is tokenized as Python code. Uh, and uh, one of the <laughs> one of the consequences is that if you go to the uh, generated C code, all the words are space. Uh, so if you put like x uh, dot y, it will be x space dot space y because it's tokenized as Python code. As Python code and uh, the only way to write that back as C code is 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 uh, doing uh, you know uh, space dot join. Nice. <laughs> so so that's what we do, and that's why it looks like super funky. Um, but yes, yes. Uh, I see. But it's generated, so like n- yeah, nobody, nobody cares, cares how it's. You, Supposed to look at it, you're supposed to run it. Yes, okay. Yeah, it's good. Um, talking about the, the metagrammar, by the way, uh, this, this is quite cool um, because um, you know the metagrammar is this thing that describes the grammar, and obviously, you, when you write the grammar, something needs to parse the grammar, and that is another <laughs> yes. perk parser. It's called the meta parser, and um, yes, it so parses all the way. And we did this beautiful thing. If you go right now to the CPython repo, there is no parser written by hand. None of them are written by hand. All of them are generated. But then you say, man, this is a chicken and an egg thing. Because like, if the parser that parses the parser that parses the parser, like who wrote that parser? And it turns out the parser that parses the parser wrote uh, the parser that parses the parser the parser. <laughs> and, 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 and how is that possible? Well, it's by the beauty of bootstrapping. Bootstrapping. Jam. What is bootstrapping? It's like, if you have a compiler engineer, a friend that is a compiler engineer, this is what they secretly like. They don't like to be, you know, hacked at night. They they like bootstrapping. That's that's the thing. Yeah. So if you want to give them anything, give them bootstrapping. It's like writing Go in Go. Yes. In Rust and Rust. Yes. Right? Yes. How is it possible? How, how is it possible that the compiler in C is written in C? It's impossible. Who wrote the first C? Yeah. Ah, this is the secret. Before it was written in something different. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, so someone manually wrote, in particular, the first parser generator, and then at some point we did this process called lifting. So we we make a parser so smart. That it was able to understand its own meta, its own grammar, so it could generate itself. And then once it generated itself, then you can destroy your handwritten parser, and all the parsers generate themselves in the, this beautiful process. Um, it's also very hard to debug, but you know, <laughs> once you have it, it's magic. Once you're confident, it's good enough. Yeah, then you can lift. Yes, yes. So, so uh, exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, so all, now all the parsers are, 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 are automatic, and, and this is beautiful. And that day was one of the happiest day of my life when I bootstrap. 
The, yeah, the so I I wasn't particularly happy when uh, when we removed async and await the soft keywords from our previous hacky parser and tokenizer, uh, and then we happily reintroduced soft keywords with a new parser because now th- th- there is no god we can do whatever you yes, want. Yes, there is no law in this place. Only generated parsers. Machines don't think. Yeah, so I was interested in knowing like okay, so if this is not so hacky and terrible anymore. How do soft keywords actually work in PEG? And what I discovered was it looks in the grammar deceptively similar. <laughs> Only you have single quoted you strings. Nice <laughs> and single quoted strings are the real keywords. And then you have double quoted strings. So the those are the soft uh, keywords. So blobby keywords. Yeah, and you know, like I have a soft spot for double quoted strings. So that makes perfect sense. So to you me. run you run black over the grammar, then all <laughs> keywords will be will be soft. <laughs> yes, it's gonna be super slow now, right? <laughs> this is super confusing, man. Like so many contributors have looked at their uh, the files, like why there are strings with single quotes and why are there strings with double quotes? Like is, th- is there a difference? And then I was like, <laughs> you're going to learn some dark truth here. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a convention, but it is a convention that actually changes the behavior of the parser generator. So it turns out that with a soft keyword, what you have to do is uh, you have to um, exercise the infinite backtracking. You have to try to extend the match that goes forward and forward, like with your input uh, string of code, and see like does this match as a keyword. And only after that fails, then you backtrack and say, okay, this is clearly not a keyword because that failed, so let's just use this as a regular name. Um, meaning to me that whenever you have a soft keyword, that makes parsing all the um, variables that are called the same just a tiny bit slower. Yes. Because now you're going to always attempt to see like all those matches there whether this is a keyword first. So guess what rules are memoized. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a keyword, better memoize that rule. Um, that's why every time there is a new pep that proposes a new soft keyword to solve all problems, then I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's not that trivial. There is some uh, concerns here. So, you know, there's a little, like, uh, you know, like a bunch of sticks holding like the dam uh, of performance just with memoization and, and the trick. But yeah, it works. It's, it, it, it's quite nice. Now it's time for what? For funky grammar secrets. Introduce nice music. Cool, okay. First grammar secret, cool. We are doing this fast, fast, fast. Okay, so the metagrammar will allow you to pull like if something is memoized. And uh, for that, you write a rule name and then you put it between parentheses memo. And that allows you to think that, ah oh, man, what else can I put here? Can I put memo, comma, something else? No. The entire parenthesis memo, close parenthesis, a single token. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> you cannot put anything else. Actually, extending that thing to take more possibilities, which would be very cool because you could send more things out of rules. Like, for instance, the rule is invalid. That would have been great yeah. to put it there. It's actually a bit annoying to do, and nobody did that. So that's why I did this, like, you know, it starts with invalid. <laughs> so that's how you mark them. Uh, nice. Um, 
by the way, uh, we have this like uh, this this thing like we say, oh, you know, no, like look, you know, the, the the grammar is it's there, and it will like uh, you know, you read the grammar, and then you know how Python works because you know anymore you don't need to do this funky thing in the in the tokenizer and whatnot. Well, that's not fully true. There is some rules, only invalid ones. So the the you know for the real Python grammar, we are very strict. Only only you know exquisite rules are added to the language, and we we don't take bullshit. But for the invalid ones, it's it's free range. Uh, one of the things <laughs> one of the things that you can do to decide if a rule parses or not is that you can do uh, something very very bad very very bad which is called tokenizer feedback oh no which is that the parser asks the tokenizer if a rule is valid oh no man coupling again like those people yeah. in black <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so there is people. one single one. There is one single one. It's very difficult. It's, it's one that is very hard to write, to be honest, uh, which is the um, is, is a rule for invalid expression. They will try to tell you that uh, maybe you forgot a comma. So for instance, you're writing a list and then you say X, Y, you know, X, Y, that, that is an example. Uh, then you maybe forgot the comma. So you wanted X, Y, right? So it will tell you, oh, mm-hmm. maybe you forgot a comma. And that will basically try to match two names one after the other. But man, there is so many edge cases for this shit that is super annoying. Uh, so there is this little sparkling magic no, 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 that it will check that if you're at top level in the parentheses uh, stack. So it will check that if you're in a list. So this rule doesn't work if you're in a list inside a list. <gasps> Oh no, uh-huh. the secret has been revealed. But those are very rare. So normally people forget commas in top level. How we prove that? Because I say so. It's horrendous. Uh, yes, another, another interesting funky secret, and this is the last one, I promise, and we will move on. Is that uh, uh, you said? Oh, you know, rules have this like thing at the beginning when you say the type, and this is very nice because like now the parser generator knows that this rule has this type, and it will put it in the compiler, and the compiler will yell at you if the type is wrong. Well, <laughs> that is very new. Before the type was void star. Yeah. You know, because C, uh, as everybody knows, is a static language, and you know, it's not monkey typing. Yeah, my ass. Like everything was void star, and then you could like magically cut stuff to stuff, and like the compiler was absolutely. I Will happily cast this like expression to a I don't know number. Yeah, why not? Like you know, it's not that anybody made a mistake here. Like, they may compile it for you, and then it will crash. And that was really, really, really annoying. So I did this um, uh, like crazy sorcery. I, I implemented generics in C. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> uh, so <laughs> yes, I did. Uh, so there is this this file in uh, include internal pycore as asdl.h. Asdl is this uh, abstract definition language for the AST. Doesn't matter. Uh, but I implemented generics in C. There is like a bunch of uh, uh, pointer aliasing because like the standard says that you cannot like magically cast a void star to some other type and the reference has an array that is illegal by the standard. So I have to like pay the price and and, and do a, like a funky ali- aliasing. But like uh-huh. you know now the compiler will will every time you try to get elements for this generic list we will will yell at you. It will say like no 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 no. This is like a expression and you cannot put a statement in an expression list because it's only expressions. Um, and it's magic, and you can also lift, and you can say, no, no, let me treat this as a generic list. It has all sort of shit, and it will allow you to also do that. And, but you need to say unsafe, <gasps> unsafe, like unsafe. almost like like what? Like Rust. Like Rust. I, in- I invented Rust before Rust. No, no, no. Actually, Rust was invented before this trick. But but yes, and this is a Macronoda keyword. Well, anyway, that that's it. That that's everything I, w- I wanted to say. All right. Okay. So let's uh, finish f- uh, with parsers. For now, I'm pretty sure we're going to come back to them at some point, but two episodes in a row, I think that's enough. Now we're going to move to another section of the show, which is... Ick, ick. 
Okay, and let me start with the weirdest PR that you can imagine because it's a PR that actually doesn't execute anything, but it's very important because lawyers are involved. Lawyers. It's. <laughs> I, I like that you waited. You waited for for the lawyers. I I knew. So this this is um an um, issue that we had since 2008. In 2008, somebody noticed like, hey, we have this stand library. It's called Audio Op. Audio Op. So it has a bunch of uh, audio-related transformations, and on top of that file, we have a comment that says "Code shamelessly stolen from socks." Copyright Craig Lees, Joe Campbell, and Jeff Postkanzer, 1989. So in 2008, somebody was like, "Well." How about we don't have a file that says we shamelessly stole code? We should document the license under which AudioOp is actually used, and that issue was opened for years and years and years. And finally, some contributor appeared in 2012 and said, "What about we use this one that is in Solaris and it's Sun Microsystems and it's the same file?" <laughs> Sun Microsystems. Oh, of course, it's going to be safe. Yeah, but at the same uh, at that point, 2012, like there was no Sun Microsystems anymore. But you know, what about what about we use this license? But we didn't know. Like there was no actual lawyer to tell us. Like, is this the good one to to use or not? Um, And that issue was lying dormant for a long while. And then in 2020, somebody else came along and said, "How about actually let's go ahead and just merge what is is in that issue what was suggested." Um, but an actual lawyer was asked at that point, "Can you give us a thumbs up that this is what we should be doing?" And that lawyer wasn't particularly convinced. There were some issues about okay, there are links to where that code used to live, but if you actually go there, that site is defunct now. You cannot actually go back and check whether those links are correct. And there was some sleuthing involved to find what is the correct license. So at some point, a license was found and immediately used and put in uh, in the source code of Python 3.10. And it survived through Python 3.11 and through Python 3.12, and in Python 3.13, audio op was entirely removed. It was just dropped from the language because we already didn't want to maintain this ancient piece of code, which uh, was very limited, somewhat buggy, not portable, and there were much better solutions for those sorts of problems on PyPI anyway. So in 3.13, that thing was removed. So Problem solved. Like it's still fine, right? Well, no. Uh, at this point, the most popular Python version on Earth uh, is Python 3.10. So a lot of people see this newly added license to Audio Op, and there is some automatic tooling that is now scraping those licenses, and it found this weird thing in the license that we just put that said no money. Shall be charged for the distribution of this code beyond reasonable shipping, handling, and duplication costs, and so on and so on. And this one sentence means, "Ha ha, we are no longer open source." Oh, well, that sucks. This is not good. 
So another lawyer contacted the Python Social Foundation saying, like, hey, like this is this we, we shouldn't have this. Like, what is this? Now now like our legal department is that Python is illegal to use at our company because it says no money shall be charged for the distribution beyond reasonable shipping. But our product is in Python and we are charging for it beyond shipping. So can you fix this? So we actually had to contact yet another lawyer to find out like what is the actual license we should be using and go on another hunt of what are the actual original sources. And we found that the original socks thing that was referenced is sound exchange that was originally part of a book about Sound Blaster in 1988. And since then, it actually grew into a larger library. And yes, uh, Sun Microsystems relicensed it from the original author, so it's all good. So we could actually use that license. And I had to um, put this in to um, three very trivial pull requests and land them. But the story of this were like years and years of like legal sleuthing and finding Jesus. like what is the correct thing to do with legal departments saying Python is no longer open source because of a library we removed anyway. Whoopsie. I guess the moral of the story is that if you involve some microsystems, something may go wrong. Well, the moral of the story is that when whenever you're saying like, why does Python remove things? Like, no, like we are removing things that are so old that nobody can really tell you anymore. Like, why was this added? How was this added? Who owns this? Like, sometimes really it is such a burden to keep maintaining things that removal is the only sane option. Yeah, we want things to be open source, right? No, no, we, we don't want to track more. Oh, yes. yeah, definitely. It's kind of important. You have any um, PRs of the week? Yes, yes, I have one. Um, I have one. Uh, so this is. Uh, I'm going to keep the numbers kind of secret because I don't want people to to know this is a secret secret information only for the people who have survived one hour and twenty minutes into the podcast. Okay. Uh, so turns out that um, if you have used any of the cool profilers out there and the buggers for Python, such as PySpy or Austin or like PyStack or Memray or I don't think it's. Uses uses this, but it's kind of also a does it qualify as cool though? No, I'm not sure. Right, so so it turns out that one of the things these tools need to do is that they need to kind of uh, from outside Python. So these tools run outside the main process. They need to go into the memory of the running process to be able to profile it all the bucket and like you know like just grab memory like raw memory and like like extract it like brutally from from there. And is is a very violent process. It's, it's really really hard. And for for you know, once you rip that memory from the other process, you need to understand the memory, right? Because this memory is right. like what it is. It's a string in Python. It's an integer. It's like a code object. It's a frame object. And then you need to understand this because you want to show like you know the, the call stack or whatever the the tool is trying to do. Right? Profilers will will fetch frame objects and it will tell you like what frame is calling what. So turns out that to do that, like most of these tools, like copy the headers of all the versions of Python, and then they use like clever magic to see like okay, what version of Python is running? Okay, so there has to be this header. So you know this memory looks like this, and this is uh, the number three, right, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out that uh, those headers uh, have become very complicated, and now it's very difficult to even even having even if you have the headers, it's very difficult to know which version of the header is going to be because you can compile Python in many ways, and depending on the way you compile Python, some of these things will be bigger or smaller. So now you will also need to know which way Python was compiled, which is not always possible. And some of these head, like structs in the headers have like you know 200 elements, or like some of, of them now are even automatically generated and have like thousands of elements. Um, so you don't want to like copy things and like trying to match those things. Right. So in Python 313, we added 
um, a secret, uh, well, it's not super secret, but it's, it's, it's just for this tool, so nobody really will use it. So we added in the Py runtime state, which is the bigger state that represents the whole runtime of Python, uh, we added like a, a struct at the beginning of it that will tell you the offsets to the most common fields that you want to access. So things like, you know, the name of the code object or like the frame object size or like, you know, what is the code object in the frame object and things like that. And instead of like having the headers and having to compile them yourself to know the offsets, you can just, you know, know that this struct is at the beginning of this place and knowing how big is this struct, you can copy and then you can learn from the process these offsets. And that is super cool. It's, it's really nice. It was a, a nice thing that I did. <laughs> so it was good. Congratulations. Yeah, but it was one problem, Lucas. Do you know the problem? I don't know. Bugs? Yes, and nobody tested that. <laughs> so, so it was the easiest peer to do. Like, hey, here's something, uh, and zero test. Um, so the problem is that to do a test, and people will say, oh, Pablo is doing things without tests. Like, oh, how, how is this like, how is he a developer? Okay, yes, yes. I'm, I'm a physicist and I'm not a developer. Anyway, uh, so, <laughs> anyway, pedantic Pablo, right? So, anyway, so I did a test. And the test involves why the test is difficult because the test involves literally making a profiler <laughs> and using these things. Um, but I did it. I did it. I, I did it in these secret PRs. And this PR basically implements a profiler. It's just something that starts reading memory from outside processes, which is a very funky thing to do, especially in macOS, because you need to do a bunch of like super barely documented, um, like uh, you know, function names that that have like very weird names, and it makes you you know like uh, think about twice about your life and whatnot. Uh, but I did it, and and the tool does the thing, and this is kind of cool because this means, and this is the secret, Google. Yeah. This, this means if you know. If you're one of these cool people that listens to core.py and have waited until this moment, you know that if you import the secret module, because it's secret, is underscore, because it's not part of the API, it's just for testing, just for testing. Mm. <laughs> so you know the module, you can call this cool function called getStackTrace. And then you can pass the PID of another process that has to be the same Python version, by the way. Profilers will work with all versions, but this, this has to be the same version. Sure. You will get the best stack, the Python stack, in a super efficient way. And you can use this to, for instance, without having to install any profiler, you can use it to debug a, a frozen Python program. From instance, another process. Or you can put this in a loop and then you have built a profiler. Wow. Nice. It's secret, but I will not tell you the name of the module. The name well, of because the module. if other core developers find out that this is something that we maintain now, they will be terrified. Yes, it's not man. It's just testing. So if we need no, to remove test, it, we will remove it. Yes, maybe maybe I will do a pep later. <laughs> but yes, I will never reveal that the name of the module is called underscore test external inspection. Mm. External inspection. External inspection sounds very dirty, but but yes, uh, it's it's just for external inspection. <laughs> <laughs> the test, yeah, and as you go, it's just insane. Like all, all these APIs, I hate them, especially the macOS ones, were especially annoying to build. Yeah. Um, but um, the, the latest one was easier. So this this test runs across platforms. It will run on macOS. It will run on Linux. Does it run on Windows? No. <laughs> but it runs on 32-bit platforms. And uh, how, how do you know that, Pablo? It was specifically, it was fucking annoying, man. It was really annoying to make it run on 32-bit platforms uh, because I ran the billboards and it was failing on, on Raspbian 32-bit. It's the only 32-bit thing that we have right now. Yes. And uh, I, I discovered a bug in 32-bit platforms and it was one of the most annoying bugs to, to the bug because you need to run the whole billboard fleet just to know if the thing runs. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the problem is that I was using, uh, sorry, this is very specific information, but it's kind of cool. Uh, I was using off underscore t 
of underscore t because I'm representing offsets. That's the type you're supposed to use in C to represent an offset of underscore yes. t. The t is for type. Gukas, question. How big is of t in 64 bits? In 64 bits? Well, it's 64. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how big is uh, of t in 32 bits? Uh, I guess it's not 32. It's not 32, exactly. Good. <laughs> if you know what happens, then if you cast this to an integer, yeah. oh no, loss of precision. And then you have, <laughs> like, do you know what happens? Like when you represent the number three, like how is the number three represented as a 64-bit integer? It has a bunch of fucking zeros. So if you cast that to an integer in 32-bit platform, your number three becomes zero. zero. And uh, what 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 special value is zero or C kind of like what pointer no. is this? It's null pointer. Yeah. Yes, yes. So the error was like you're the reference and a null pointer. I was like, what do you mean? No, it's the number three. <laughs> like, what, like, what do you mean? And I was like, no man, but this is 64 bit in both platforms. Like so uh, This I, is why C is now illegal. Yeah, man. <laughs> I was thinking on the view as a government quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now instead of of t is u in 64t which is 64 in all platforms and, and it won't cast to integers when you do like integer addition, addition to pointers um, so that, that was real a bug and the other bug was that I literally forgot one of the fields that was necessary to do the, the whole thing and I discovered uh-huh. while implementing it so now you know secret oh, cool right so let's move on to what everybody else is doing uh, in this entirely different section of our show called What's Going On in C Python? These days, when we're doing this section, it's mostly three things that we're talking about free threading, also known as. <clears throat> no, no, no. Then we talk about faster Python, also known as the things needed for digit. And then uh, this third group. That is everything else. Oh, that's that's very that's a bit violent. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little violent, but like miscellania, yes, miscellania. Misc. <laughs> but it just seems that there is so much change in those first two categories, yep. and it's so fundamental that it's just you know like this grouping makes sense, right? Right. <laughs> so the first group, free threading. And there are some meaty changes. What you have to understand is uh, our last episode was the last day of January. We almost missed releasing in February, uh, which would be terrible. But fortunately, this is the leap year, so we're releasing on February 30th. So uh, (laughs) we're golden. So there were a lot of changes in the meantime. Um, The one that is the most impressive in my mind is... Uh, how Sam added delayed memory reclamation called quiescent state-based reclamation. Wow. It just sounds super nice. Like, but, okay, what does this do? Like, why do we need this? Quiescent. Essentially, what you want to have is when you have concurrent accesses to some memory, you cannot free this memory while others are still looking at it. But at the same time, what you don't want to do is you don't want to lock reading access to some piece of memory such that... The dictionaries, we explained this in the Nogil episode. Yes, so what you want is to actually achieve parallelism there. So you need to delay the free operation until all concurrent reads are guaranteed to have completed. And this relies on this quiescent states. When a thread reports that uh, it is not for sure in the middle of any non-locking read operations. And we have this 
fantastic place where we can actually do this report, which is the eval breaker. Right. Like we know for sure, okay, now no non-locking read operations are happening. And this implementation in particular borrows from FreeBSD's global unbounded sequences. Global unbounded sequences. <laughs> yes, not only licensing is very attractive to us for this, but the solution is also, well, Sam says, relatively simple, and we could build on top of this. Relatively simple. Yeah, like it's, it's what Sam says in the PR. Like, and I was like, okay, I believe you. Uh, <laughs> now the solution uses linear scanning, which performs well below a thousand threads. So beware, users of Python. In Python 3.12, if you used three, you would see, oh, I'm not actually using any of my cores. But now you can only use 1,000 cores. If you use over 1,000 cores, then this operation is going to be somewhat inefficient. So, you know. Is that this stupid cookers? Like, you cannot even use 1,000 cores. What about all these <laughs> CUDA boxes, right? Like, what yeah. all those CUDA, CUDA cores? No, like for, for this, uh, if this actual need arises, there are alternative algorithms we can uh, use. Like crashing. Sam wisely recognized that, hey, for now, <laughs> this is good enough. Like we have bigger problems uh, to solve first. Yeah, when, when, I, when, I, when I'm bigger, I want to be like Sam. It's cool. Like I want to name something quiescent. Yeah, quiescent. Quiescent. Yes, I also like this. Yeah. Um, one bigger problem that we have with uh, Nogil so far is that uh, even though there is a configure option and there's a bunch of important changes towards it, uh, we still don't actually disable the gil. Mm. That is still not landed yet. Right. And the reason for it is that there are a lot of prerequisites to allow this. And one of those was to finish biased reference counting. So you might remember we said, okay, like the basis of this is already implemented in October. Mm -hmm. But there were two parts, like the base change to reference counting was already landed, but there was one missing piece that was crucial. Because I, you might remember, like now there is no single counter for reference counts, there are two. There is the local one and there is a shared one. Right. And there are cases where the shared one, because it's shared, like might get below zero. And in this case, you just have to say, okay, the owner thread of this object should reconcile this. So to do this, you need to use a queue to allow this inter-thread communication. And that queue was landed now. Uh, so that actually allows us, at least in this sense, to disable the gill without crashes that right. some objects disappear too fast from, uh, from memory. Yeah, and there were a bunch of smaller, well, I don't want to call them smaller, but like a, a bunch of other changes that allow removal of uh, the gill, like collections deck is now thread safe, thanks to our new triager Matt Page from Meta. Donkhina made uh, free lists for dictionaries per thread. And Dino Vland made the MRO cache thread safe and also added critical sections over dictionary APIs. But that's no gill for this episode. Um, what about making Python faster? Making Python faster. So the biggest chunk, uh, chunky, chunky PR was the initial implementation of trace stitching uh, is now landed. We talked in the last episode about what trace stitching does. But basically, essentially, Python profiles your running code, and then it will discover what code uh, that you're running is hot, and it can optimize, like you know, loop something like that in numeric code. So in 3.11 and 3.12, we are already doing that, but this is done by bytecode specialization. So this is like when we replace generic bytecodes, like add things with like specific bytecodes, like add numbers that are integers with 62 bits or 64 bits, sorry. 
So you know, uh, but now this is different, right? In Python three thirteen, uh, instead of doing this bytecode specialization, this will work instead by transferring an execution for uh, the what we call tier one interpreter, which is the normal interpreter that is used before, into uh, what we discussed previously, which is the new tier two interpreter, which, as you remember, is based on this idea of micro uh, ops. And this execution to transfer happens via one API that we added called the executor, because it's a very specific name. <laughs> executor, it executes. No, it transfers. Um, because calling the transfer utor, it was probably not going to fly. <laughs> Uh, and this uh, this API basically consists of a linear sequence of micro ops, uh, but can be basically optimized in an executable, executable form. This is almost almost like you know machine code when you're doing JIT compilation. And actually, one of the ideas is that um, when you have these micro ops, you can actually run uh, like a JIT when when you teach the JIT function. But that will come probably later. Uh, but and basically, in this PR after this PR, when the executor exits. Uh, Python also will track how hot those exits were, and they can at attach new executors to those exits. And the idea is that once you do this, uh, you can form an execution graph, uh, an execution graph that you can also like optimize and and you know decide which ones um, you can you can move away. Like if you enter an exit uh, like multiple times, you can just remove that. Uh -huh. For instance, uh, so that's the one of the biggest PR. I think that was Mark Shannon. It was Mark Shannon, right? Yes. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, the the other PR that is important is that Kenjin added basic type propagation and guard elimination on tier two optimizers. So guards are when you are checking like you know oh is this a you say this is an integer is really an integer. Uh, so sometimes you can remove those guards because like you can prove that indeed it's an integer so you don't need to do it. For example, if you have done it before. So if you have done it before and then you don't know that the type cannot change after that, then then it's good. And oh boy, another thing that happened is that Mark Shannon. Added one interesting PR that basically implemented a change in the garbage collector called incremental incremental GC collection. Yeah. And the idea here is that uh, instead of like having a single collection that go through all the garbage in the generation, instead of doing that because that's a long time and you know you need to go through all the objects in the generation and all that, we will talk in a different episode about um, you know garbage collection. It basically just goes through a like a bunch of the objects in the generation, just to reduce the chunks, and it just basically ensures that when when you go uh, like and do multiple of these collections, you will end eventually going through all of them. Um, that was nice; it was merged, but the GC doesn't like it. The GC doesn't like it. It's a very special special guy, and right. um, the, the GC rejected this change, <gasps> and a billboard was failing. Yeah, all the billboards were happy. One wasn't. Except one. Yes. The big man billboard that your friend Guke Slanga maintains in his yeah, secret I, room. Yeah, I have it right behind me and it sometimes gets a little warmer. That means Mark Shannon landed some diffs. Uh -huh. And in this particular case, like it got really warm yes. because it found some assertions that were failing. Well, <laughs> kind of important assertions like you know corruption and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. So we reverted the PR for now. Um, maybe in the future this will go back. Uh, you know, in the DC uh, incremental collection, the revenge. Uh, but until part two, uh, this is Roberto. Yeah. So to be clear, like we're we're talking about this not as like some failure of you know implementation. We're mostly talking about this for two reasons. First of all, those changes are tricky, and the testing uh, with certain options in certain environments that we have it needs to be really comprehensive to find each cases and the transformations in the mutation of the code base that we're performing. So the big memory billboard, for example, like 
this is one of those things where I get questions like, is this really so important? Essentially, every laptop now has a lot of memory. So um, what does it mean that something is really big memory? But it turns out like we have quite a bunch of tests that weren't even until very recently executed by the big memory build bot because even those tests wanted more memory than I would give them. The mega memory build bot. Yes, like that's that's the thing. So you need to understand like the, the build bot has 100 128 gigs of RAM, but if you want to have any parallelism during those test runs, which you do want because you don't want them to take multiple hours, uh, you cannot use you know 128 gigs as the limit for every test because if there's going to be four executing in parallel, like well, haha, you lost. Like this is not how memory works. So um, I had to give them 24 gigs, and I thought that's enough, right? Like that's a lot, like to give. That's way more than any build bots actually are using. But it turned out no. No, there is plenty of tests that start with more memory than 24, and a lot of uh, them require more than 30. There's still a bunch that require more than 50. And now I'm talking to Diego Russo from ARM, like, hey, for those, maybe we can use your box that has 256 gigs of RAM. Just add more memory. <laughs> yes, we just like, need to throw more universes to the problem. I literally uh, maxed out what the AM5 architecture in like a home PC can fit. 128 gigs is the max. There's no not more. I run it at a slower speed than the uh, JEDEC specification because the AM5 doesn't support running it with full speed. But yes, in fact, the, the point is, this sometimes does find issues um, and those are the annoying issues that Pablo mentioned where you need to run it on somebody else's build bot to reproduce because it's just so much memory. Yeah, and this is a particular tricky combination and I did this uh, kind of on purpose. This is not only our only build bot for big memory, it's our big memory Windows 11 build bots. And that's like a combo a that pain. finds what a pain. That finds a lot How of How do you SSH into that? SSH is forbidden technology in, in, in Windows. I literally have another keyboard <laughs> on my desk for this build bot because course, it's better than any, any remote login. It's easier to, to ask for a different keyboard than to SSH. <laughs> okay. Right. So just to call out those things, since this is this is becoming maybe the longest the episode we had so far. Uh, let's just call out some other nice changes that happened this week because it's not only Nogil, it's not only uh, JIT and faster Python changes. One particular thing that I wanted to mention well, is not even really like a big code change, but it's like an end of an era. Wow. We had a documentation about how to port things from Python 2, and this documentation is now gone. The URL is still there if some existing links point to it, but it only says, hey, we used to have documentation here now, just look at those other web pages. It was deemed unnecessary for current Python documentation for Python 3.13, 3.12, and 3.11 to tell people how to port from Python 2 anymore. So that means the transition is essentially mostly done. Like We are actually behind the hill already. We progressed. So... This is one of those moments where the diff, the PR, doesn't really change that much. But if you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, time flies. We are, we're over it. And I remember it was like, will we even ever adopt Python 3 as a community? Like, is this ever going to be over? Yeah, it's over. Today is the day. Yes. Okay, we have something cool. The Python CLI help 
when you're writing Python, that's the help that it is. Now it looks much nicer. And you will say, well, what gives? Oh, this is a PR that, if I remember correctly, was from 2022. Yeah. Several years in the making. Wow. And what this does? Well, it turns out that when you run Python, that's the help. That was quite big. It was a chunky boy, like a lot of output because it showed you all these like X options that have like a bunch of secret keywords that you can put there. Um, and if you forget one letter, then it may not do what you want and there is no warning. Um, that's a story for another day uh, because I added a warning and people complain. <laughs> yeah. uh, so now uh, there is a bunch of improvements, if I recall correctly. This were done by the one and only Sergi Storchaka. Um, and uh, for instance, there is a bunch of things uh, now is much shorter. Uh, and also, like lines are now squeezed, and they are low, uh, shorter than eighty columns. The the, the best number uh, because there is not a best a better number, right, Lucas? <coughs> no, no, no. Well, no, no, no. what's more important about this change is that this is now nicely indented. Like the indentation yes, is yes, much it's, clearer. It's wrapped with the same indentation. Yes. And now I remove empty lines between the X options, and now. It also is shorter because it hides all the like X options and whatnot. And if you want them back, you need to use does that help that all all the help. You need to ask for all the help. Um, and and then when you do that, then you will get a bigger output. Um, and then it has right. also other things like help env and help X options. And and you can check the help or different things. Um, yes. Two years. Why it took two years, well, Lucas? Uh, I already said that in the in the PR when I reviewed it, and it o- offended some of the people who discussed there. It was in bike shedding hell, but um, I feel very strongly about ending bike shedding discussion. So I did that in this case, and uh, we can move on to more important things. Like <laughs> for the longest time, uh, we had support for the first Unix. Um, key value store, DBM, and there were many variants of DBM, right? The original one, and then uh, GNU had its one, and BSD had NDBM, and so on and so on. Um, And based on this, there was, um, there still is, a shelf module where you can store arbitrary Python objects in this sort of key value dictionary on disk. Well, the only problem was that this um, DBM interface is really primitive when it comes to concurrent access, and the durability aspect of it is questionable depending on the platform. But most importantly, the files it produces are only usable for you locally. So it might be fine for a cache, but it's not going to be nice for reusing that file uh, on another computer. So now, after years and years of us having this idea, and everybody said, like, wouldn't it be nice if we had a DBM backend that actually stores the data in a SQLite database? So we were talking about this, but not ever acting on this. But ever since we got an actual maintainer for our SQLite 3 module, our Erland was great making SQLite 3 feel better and more powerful. And now he got to a point where he was like, you know, I can add the DBN backend for SQLite. He did. And the most uh, amazing thing about this is that now transparently, Shelf can use it now. So even though you've heard this for uh, years and years, that Shelf is just a toy, don't use it, use something else. Now we could probably actually use Shelf, it will be fine. And the reason why is 
you probably have SQLite in all your devices, like storing data for whatever uh, you might think. Like your watch is going to store your steps and you know heart rate, like in a SQLite database. So you might as well use it for your tiny use cases. So yeah, I'm very happy to see this, even though it's a it's a maybe uh, inconsequential um, change in the cloud age, but still for me, very 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 nice, good to see. nice, nice. Cool. Um, wow. One hour and 52 minutes. Probably it's a bit shorter because we will remove some blah, blah, blah. But it's going to be the longest episode that we have ever done. How do you feel, Gukesh? We, we, we should really think about making those episodes shorter from now on, which we will. But since this is the only episode of February 2024, <laughs> might as well be almost two hours. Double, 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 double. Well, anyway, uh, the feedback so far has been from everybody is that they like long episodes, I suppose, because they love listening to us. Wow, incredible. Uh, so here's a two-hour episode. <laughs> what about this? All right. Uh, this is what you want. See you next time. Until next time. Click stop. Stop!